Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's Health Department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, Paul Spiegel, professor of the practice and director of the Center for Humanitarian Health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, speaks with John Barry, the noted historian and the author of The Great Influenza. Their conversation centers on the lessons of the 1918 pandemic for today's response to coronavirus. Let's listen. John Barry, it's such a pleasure to have you today uh, on this podcast. Recently, you published a New York Times opinion piece where you said the single most important lesson from the 1918 influenza was that containment failed. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant there? Well, the, in 1918, of course, there, there actually was no effort to contain it. The influenza would be probably impossible to really contain because the incubation period is much shorter than coronavirus. Uh, this roughly 48 hours is the average incubation period for influenza. Five to six days is average, and as long as 14 days for coronavirus. So influenza doesn't give you an opportunity to isolate contact trace and so forth and so on. Coronavirus does give you that opportunity because of the length of time of the incubation period. Uh, on the other hand, it also means that the, the whole cycle of a wave is going to be lengthened. Uh, in 1918, influenza would pass through a given city generally in you know somewhere six to 10 weeks. Uh, I would expect movement of the coronavirus to be considerably slower. And in what, what are some of the differences that you found between um, responses to with the 1918 pandemic and this current pandemic? Well, of course, there was no centralized effort in the United States whatsoever. Wilson was president. He never issued a single statement about the disease. Uh, even though he got a very serious attack, although not until the third wave in the spring when he was negotiating the peace treaty, which and then had, I think, the disease had significant repercussions because of his mental and physical weakness after it. Because we were at war, there had been an entire infrastructure created designed to keep morale up, which effectively meant to lie. The disease was known as Spanish flu, uh, although it did not start in Spain. We do know that. And uh, national public health leaders were saying things like, this is ordinary influenza by another name. It certainly was not. People, number one, young people were dying. Probably two-thirds of the deaths were between 18 and 50. The peak age for death was 28. Uh, number two, people could get horrific symptoms. Uh, Initially, the disease was misdiagnosed as cholera, typhoid, dengue. Other symptoms were even more horrific, bleeding from the eyes and ears, as well as the nose and mouth. So to tell someone this was ordinary influenza by another name was not credible. As a result, people very 
rapidly lost all trust and authority in those cities where local leaders echoed the national line. And society began to actually fray because of that. In terms of the response, it varied from city to city. The overwhelming majority, but not all, like not New York, for example, did much of what we're doing now. Maybe not quite as extreme, but they closed schools, restaurants, bars, banned church services, uh, no public gatherings, and so forth, although businesses continued to operate. But as a general rule, the cities did that after the disease had already disseminated widely in the community, uh, so those measures had very little effect. In a few communities there, who did it early, there was some positive impact. So, I mean, there is a correlation between when a city instituted various restrictions and the peak, you know, whether you could flatten the peak and so forth. So I think the two lessons are, number one, telling the truth so that you retain your credibility. And I think all else flows from telling the truth. If you expect to be able to sustain compliance with public health recommendations, social distancing, hand washing, and so forth, you expect sustained compliance People have to believe what you're saying, and they have to adhere to it. If they doubt your credibility, they're not going to do it at all. It's hard enough to get sustained compliance under any circumstances. Thanks, John. I, I was thinking about some of the many, of course, there are many differences from between 1918 and now, but certainly one of them is the way information flows at the internet and how people get their sources. Can you comment on that and how, obviously, you know how that's changed since 1918, but potentially some of the influences? Well, the news media in 1918 was totally untrustworthy. In fact, they would be prosecuted or risk prosecution if they told the truth. When Philadelphia finally closed, Philadelphia is one of the hardest hit cities in the country. When they finally closed everything down, uh, one of the newspapers actually went so far, and this is a time when Philadelphia is digging mass graves. A uh, newspaper said, uh, this is, is not a public, the closing orders, this, this is not a public health measure. You have no cause for alarm. So obviously people aren't that stupid. Uh, of course they had cause for alarm. So the, the, the media was useless. In, in Phoenix, for example, they wrote about the disease when it was in Boston, but as it moved across the country toward Phoenix, less and less was written. And when it was actually in Phoenix, there was hardly a word in the newspaper about it. Today is entirely different. You know, so back then it was almost as if the only news out there was rumor and it was all bad internet information. Might be an analogy. Now people can get good information if they look for it. However, we have a gap between the main source of information, the federal government. You have on the one hand, the White House itself, and on the other hand, the rest of the administration, whether it's Tony Fauci at NIH or the CDC. And the CDC has largely been silenced most recently, obviously for the first couple of months, 
Trump was uh, trivializing almost the outbreak. All of a sudden, eight or nine days ago, he got serious. And, and even so, he's still uh, exaggerating, you might say, or putting the best spin on things. In terms of the internet, you do hear wild rumors and so forth. And I'm not really, and I don't really monitor that. I think people are paying attention to, at least they're listening to the main reliable sources. I hope that's the case. You know, I, I really haven't done any kind of study of this. So I probably should have just told you that I don't know when you asked me the question. One, perhaps a hypothetical, knowing that you're an award-winning uh, historian and writer, is what do you think was the effect especially of the truth-telling or lack of it in 1918 because of the war? And if we were not in a war-like situation, are you able to hazard a guess of how it would have been different then? And can we learn from that? Well, yeah, of course, I just, because we were war, and I just went through the, uh, the line, the idea that this was ordinary, quote, ordinary influenza by another name. It's hard to speculate. I, as a historian, I don't like to speculate on alternative realities. Once again, there was no national leadership on public health. Again, Wilson never issued a single statement on, on the outbreak. We did have a public health service. We did have a surgeon general. I would say the most respected person in the country and very possibly in the world was right at Hopkins, William Welsh. Uh, if he spoke, people listened. As I say, I don't really like to speculate on, on what ifs. It's very hard to figure. Oh, that's interesting about Welch, who's obviously, yeah, a, a hero from, from Hopkins. And indeed, the School of Public Health was organized and opened in the middle of the pandemic. Why was there, do you think at that point, why was some, someone like the president, President Wilson, not speaking out? Was it a different culture at that, that time, or was it because of the war? Well, the, we already had had Teddy Roosevelt, who was, you know, talked about the bully pulpit. So Wilson was not at all averse to using that pulpit when he wanted to. But he was focused in an obsessive, almost sick, actually, way on the war. That was the only thing that mattered to him, uh, nothing else. Everything in the government was focused on the war. And... I have from, you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth or speculate uh, on what he thought, but it's crystal clear that the war, winning the war was the only thing that mattered to him. So influenza was a side issue. There had been a spring wave, which was quite mild. It hit some cities like New York, which is one reason why I think New York fared pretty well. They had some immunity there. And Los Angeles had skipped entirely, not a single influenza death in the spring in Los Angeles. And because of the mildness, I mean, it was mild compared to the to the fall wave. Let's let's make that clear. It was maybe a little rougher than an ordinary influenza season. Soldiers and camps did get sick, but possibly in their defense. They may have felt that this was the same thing coming back, and it wouldn't be that big a deal, although it very quickly became apparent that it was a very big deal. 
I mean, on September 26, they canceled the draft because every Army camp in the United States, every training camp, was filled with nothing but sick soldiers. They they couldn't accept any more people in those camps to be trained. And although that was less than two months from the end of the war, at the time, nobody knew it. Everything was being geared up for a major offensive in the spring of 1919. So everyone expected the war to continue. So I, I don't think it's, I think it's very safe speculation to say Wilson's focus on the war pushed everything else out of his mind. That's interesting. It's, it's also, yeah, it's very interesting to see how contemporaneous events at that time influence uh, how a response. My last question, and thank you because this has been fascinating, is that I've been reading what you've been writing recently, and you mentioned, if I understood correctly, it was extremely hard to undertake quarantine, even amongst the military, which one would think would be much more disciplined. And so how do you think then, well, one at that time, how did the military quarantine compare to, let's say, the civilians? But I think you also wrote that ultimately it didn't have a major effect. And therefore, what, how does that relate to what we're trying to do today? I think uh, the data I quoted uh, was a very good epidemiological study of army camps, or 120 of roughly 5,000 or more uh, soldiers. And 99 of the camps imposed some form of camp, quarantine, isolation. In some camps, they inspected soldiers twice a day for any symptom. If they had one symptom, they were isolated. If, they had two, if there were two soldiers in the unit, the symptoms, the entire unit was quarantined. That was in some camps. They didn't all do that, even the ones that did impose quarantine and isolation. But in 21 camps, they didn't do any of that. And there was no statistical difference between camps that did and did not quarantine. But the epidemiologists who did the study... George Sopa, a very good pioneer epidemiologist, later did the first studies of cancer, epidemiological studies, and the head of later head of the American Cancer Society, went beyond simply the statistics and did a qualitative analysis. And he discovered that the camps that originally enforced the various measures did, in fact, benefit and did significantly flatten the curve. I made the point in the article that of the army in the middle of a war couldn't successfully sustain a quarantine over a period of weeks. What happened? You know, these things had to be continued and, and there was too much leakage, but in only a few camps was it sustainable. You know, then it would be a great challenge to a civilian community. However, there are, of course, differences that made it harder in the army if you have any leakage. And that is, you know, soldiers in barracks, you know, certainly no social distancing once it's in the barracks. That's hugely important when you compare it to civilian community. In addition, even the places that closed down everything, they didn't close businesses. There was tremendous absenteeism out of fear or staying home to take care of somebody sick or being sick yourself. So it wasn't unusual to have at least 40% absenteeism, in many cases, far, far more absenteeism, <laughs> excuse me. But that's still a long way from what we're trying to accomplish here. Uh, essentially, I'm speaking to you from New Orleans, which shut down everything roughly a week ago. 
And that brings us back to compliance, which brings us back to telling the truth and being credible. For these measures to work, I mean, they are much more widespread and, and with more chance of success than an army camp with soldiers in a barracks. But for these things to work, you still need compliance and you still need you still need people to believe what they're being told and what they're being advised. And that's why messaging is is absolutely crucial and, and so important to this whole process and why I'm quite concerned about what the White House had been saying. They seem to get on message for a, a week, but I'm afraid they may drift away soon. John Barry, thank you so much, both for your, your work and recording the history of the 1918 pandemic, but also for trying to, with your experience, help us uh, deal with this current pandemic. Thank you again very much. Oh, thank you, Paul. Good to see you. Stay well. Thank you for listening to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.